From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Larry Day with this week's message. There are some things that just go together. You can't take them apart. And we know it's true because of Frank Sinatra. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. Yeah. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without thee. Lift your hands and sing with me. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Frankie will bring the presents. Yes. <laughs> something. They'll bring something. It's true. There's just some things that are kind of like dynamic duos. I say peanut butter. You say. I say Batman. You say. I say salt. You say. They just go together. You can't take them apart, right? Right? Okay. I thought I lost you there for a second. You were doing so well. Today we're going to take a, a another kind of deeper dive um, into looking at a couple of things that go together. You can't take them apart. Faith and works. It's a dynamic duo of, of Christianity. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been looking into the book of James. Um, and we're asking a question at the beginning of this year that we want you to really consider. So we've been asking it for, this will be the third week in a row, and the question is this, and you have to apply it individually. This isn't really, it's, it's a question for the church, capital C, little c, but it's really applied individually, which is, are we living what we claim we believe? That's the question that we really want to consider here at the beginning of 2023, which is a little in your face. And you might go, well, Larry, why do we need to know this? Because if this thing, our faith, our salvation, is truly the most valuable thing that we can possess. Jesus said, you find a pearl of great price, you sell everything you can to get this stuff, right? If this salvation, if our faith is the most important thing that we possess, then we need to put ourselves to the test and make sure that we're actually following after Jesus and not some counterfeit. We're looking at it for the same reason that that Jesus tested people at the Sermon on the Mount. And you might not look at that as a test, but that's what it did. He gathered those people together. These are people who thought they were right with God. And he brought them through a thought process, test. Just look at the Beatitudes and apply them to yourself and see if you pass the test. And that test would prove that they were not right with God so that they could repent and get right with God and be saved, right? They could be, they could be returned to right relationship with God. So here at the beginning of the year, we're asking the Holy Spirit to do the same thing with us. So we're looking at the, the book of James. James is teaching just like his brother taught. He's speaking directly to believers in this book. He's talking to Christians. 
He's talking to us. People who think they're in right relationship with Jesus. And the entire last, uh, the entire uh, book, the entire letter is a test about your salvation. And they're tests that expose potential weaknesses in us, but it's for a purpose. It's to make us stronger. We need to be able to endure trials, right? James wants us to test our faith. Just like Jesus, he's, he's testing our attitudes. He's, our, he's testing our commitment to the word of God. He's attesting our, will, our willingness to be influencers of others rather than always being influenced by others. He's testing our readiness to actually be obedient and obey what God says. Because all of those and a whole lot more are indicators that our salvation is real, not counterfeit. So... How we approach trials, that's a clue, right? Our humility, or lack thereof, that's a clue also. How we deal with temptation, it's a clue. How we act, meaning like Derek was talking last week, being uh, doers, not just hearers, that's a clue. How we treat others. It's a clue. It's all clues to our salvation, the state of our salvation. James holds a mirror up to our face, and we are forced to look into it and try to see if we're reflecting any kind of living faith, any kind of fruit going on in our lives. So this morning, we're going to start and continue on with a portion of James. We're just going to read it here together, which is James chapter 2. Verse 14. Ready? All right, here we go. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a nice day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing? What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone might argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith because you believe that there's one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead 
without good works. Faith and works, they go together just like Frankie said. Can't take them apart. Now, both Derek and I pointed out over the last couple of weeks that this book, and particularly this portion of the book that we just read, this portion of scripture, is often used to try to point out by critics that, you know, James is teaching one thing and Paul is teaching something else regarding how you're saved. You know, of course, Paul is teaching that, you know, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not of ourselves, not based on anything we've done, lest any man should boast. But if you look at the portion of scripture that we just read, you see phrases like faith by itself isn't enough. Faith without good works is useless. Abraham's actions made his faith complete. We're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Faith is dead without good works. That's a lot of phrases there. So some grab those, those uh, statements and they try to build a theology around them that says that your faith is, is based on your good works. That, that if you want to be saved, what you need to do, if you, know, if you want forgiveness of sins, if, if you want to have a right relationship with God, then you have to do some type of penance, if you will, um, in order to earn the mercy of God. Uh, we both pointed out, Derek and I both pointed out that, you know, no, Paul is saying that your, your salvation is received by faith. And James is pointing out that after you are saved, your salvation is then verified by your works. So no contradiction, no contradiction, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, keep, keep moving on. You know, as Protestants, you know, you, you know we're Protestants. Did you know that? Okay, just been a while since we've covered that. Uh, we are Protestants. You know, and as people of the Reformation, we stand with the truth that the Reformers brought back to the church. So yes, we all agree with Paul when he says we're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So we agree that salvation is a gift. It's given to us. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's unmerited. So you go, well, then what in tarnation is James talking about here? He says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Can that kind of faith bring about salvation? So what James is asking here isn't, can faith without works save you? He's not asking that. He's asking, can that kind of faith save you? What kind? Well, a kind of faith where you profess to have, you say you have it, but it actually doesn't do anything. Can that kind of faith save you? I was uh, looking through my uh, software this week as I was studying, and I ran across this uh, illustration. It's about 10 years old. It was literally an illustration. It's a cartoon. It was in the, the New Yorker magazine a decade ago, and it, it made the rounds of uh, church illustrations, and it's still noteworthy because this probably more noteworthy. Uh, this cartoon showed a church, and you know how churches often have the billboard outside, and they put pithy sayings up uh, for those of us who drive by and read them. 
And the billboard in this cartoon was advertising what a great church this was. And it said this. It said, we're the home of the 7.5% tithe. We have, we have 24% fewer commitments. You know, we have a 45-minute worship service. We have only eight commandments, your choice. You know, and their slogan was, everything you wanted in a church and less. <laughs> yeah, it's humorous. Uh, sadly, there's truth in the, in, the, in the humor. And that's truth. That truth is what we need to guard against. You know, the church in the United States is infected and infested with the spirit of the age. You know, it's moved towards comfort and commitment. Uh, excuse me, comfort over commitment. There's no emphasis put on the moving of the Holy Spirit in the, in the hearts of men and women, if they even still believe in those archaic gender terms I just used, right? There's much more emphasis placed on presentation than content, So it's not about feeding the spirit. It's not about the word. It's not about opening your heart. It's not about experiencing God. And James might argue, it's not about faith. Because James is saying here, there is absolutely a difference between a real possession of faith as opposed to just a profession of faith. And he sounds just like his big brother, Jesus. I told you that... uh, some folks consider this book of James, it's sometimes called the practical application of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can remember that Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5. And towards the end of that sermon, I think it's chapter 7, Jesus said that there would be people who come to him on the last day and they say, Lord, Lord, don't, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do mighty things in your name? They would make a profession of faith, right? They'd say with their mouths that they're followers of Jesus. And we know the response. Jesus said, get away from me. I've never known you. Later in the same, in the same book of Matthew, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So James is reiterating here what Jesus has made really clear, which is human beings uh, can make an outward profession of faith about a faith that they don't actually have. How does that happen? Well, some folks might have just read a book and got sold a bill of goods, you know. Some folks might have gone to an evangelistic meeting, you know. Come on down to the altar, say this prayer, Jesus will forgive you. And we tend to put a lot of emphasis in our circles about a moment like that in a service. And it's just like that. Come down, confess your sins, surrender your life to God, ask for daily strength, fill out the commitment card, and you're in. And you know what? The truth is you might be in. I think the reality is, uh, if you were one of God's, you were in before you even did that list because you can't do that list unless God regenerates you and gives you the uh, faith and the ability to actually really do that stuff. 
But the problem is some folks just do the list without God. And they get confused into thinking that their outward action is what brought them salvation. And hey, I mean, things can get confusing and I am the king of making simple confusing. (laughs) Let me ask you this, simple question. Are we saved by works? Now, some of you are going, well, I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> it's just a simple question. I know how I'd answer it. You know, if somebody asked, I'd, you're thinking I'm going to say no. And you're thinking that, you know, Larry, this is exactly what James is talking about. Larry, didn't you just quote Paul and say that we're saved by grace, not by works? The answer is no. Well, I did say all that. But listen, the, the actually the correct answer to my question is yes, we are saved by works. Uh, Larry, have you gone Roman Catholic or something on us this morning? Uh, no. The question I asked was, are we saved by works? Now, the details are important. What details? Whose work? Whose work? Are we saved by works? Yes, but not our works, right? We're saved by the work that Jesus did during his life by living an absolutely perfect, sinless life and by doing so, attaining perfection and attaining righteousness. We're saved by the work that Jesus did on the cross by dying in our place, conquering sin, hell, the grave. We're saved by his work from rising from the dead and ascending up into heaven. We're saved right now at this very moment because Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven over the entire universe, right? But I am not saved by my own works. I'm saved by grace, by putting my trust, putting my faith, putting my confidence in the work that Jesus did on my behalf. So your actions, your decision to make Jesus Lord of your life didn't save you. His decision to serve you, to ransom you, to die for you, saved you. And we trust in that to save us, right? So, you know, the reformers who I mentioned a little while ago were Protestants because of these guys. The reformers of the 16th and 15th century, and they struggled to articulate some of this truth, and specifically about this justification by faith alone. And they actually had a way more complete formula, and we've kind of shortened it you know, to the phrase, we're justified by faith alone. It's, it's shorthand because of reasons like I just pointed out. You can flip that totally around and still be correct. But what you're going to find the reformers writing over and over and over is justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And once again, I think to myself, you know, theology probably isn't really well served in sound bites um, and oversimplification. It's not complete, you know, so difficult that a child can't understand it. But sometimes in our attempt to make it simple, we miss some of the, the points. 
I mean, what did they mean by that phrase? Justification by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Well, they're anticipating the follow-up question. The biggest of which, when it comes to this question of saving faith, is this. Well, what is the, the nature? What's the essence? What makes up saving faith? And the reformers broke it into a bunch of parts, six, seven, eight, sometimes. I'll give you three. And you might be going, Larry, what's this got to do with the book of James? Um, I think this is what James is driving at. The whole book is testing our salvation. And right here, he's flat out asked about the nature of saving grace. He, he asked this question, can that kind of faith save anyone? So restating it, what kind of faith can save you? Well, the Roman Catholic position was then at the time and still is, well, faith plus works would equal salvation. That's what would save you, faith plus works. So you get a task. Here's your penance. Here's your forgiveness. Jesus will forgive you. The antinomian view that was coming into vogue at the time of the Reformation was that Christians are not required to do anything or keep any moral laws in order to be saved because grace had basically removed that requirement. By the way, today that, uh, that view lives on well in the kind of hyper-grace movement and really was still in, it was in place before the reformers. The Gnostics uh, held that view and confronted the New Testament church uh, as well. But like I said, the reformers broke saving faith down. I'll give you three elements uh, because to me this makes sense when we're trying to answer the question that, that uh, James is pointing out here. Now, I taught a while back about faith, and I pointed out that faith always has an external object to it. When you jump off the cliff, and you're not just going, I'm faith, I'm going to stick the landing. <laughs> you're trusting in the rope that's going to gently ease you down. So your faith, your trust, another word for faith is trust. You trust in the rope, something external to yourself. Uh, faith as it regards to Christianity, has an object external to us, and his name is Jesus. You know, And to have trust in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, you have to know something about him. So the first element of saving faith that the Reformers spoke about was, the first word is notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A. We could have a cheerleading squad do that for us. Give me that. Notitia. It's a Latin word. Uh, it, it has to do with information. It's about, it's about data. And it, basically what they're saying that it matters. It's really important who it is in whom you are placing your faith to save you. Our culture doesn't seem, there's a, seem to think there's a whole lot of difference. Well, Larry, as long as I'm genuine, as long as I'm honest, as long as I'm, you know, this is heartfelt to me. This is, I'm sincere. Who are you to question where I put my faith? That, that's where our culture is, right? You can have faith in Mohammed or Buddha or Joseph Smith or a walrus or, you know, a tree or your favorite philosophical-ism, uh, you know. Hey, you can place your faith in Satan himself. So faith alone... 
probably not. You know what? I saw a book this week. It was called The Encyclopedia of Gods. I don't recommend it. It listed 2,500 deities of the world. 2,500. That's probably just the tip of the iceberg. Our culture says the object of your faith makes no difference. Just pick one. The reformers said, and I concur, and the Bible concurs, no, the object matters. The object is the difference, you know. Uh, The saving faith uh, has the element of notitia. That's the information, the data. Uh, By the way, that's why the, the... teaching ministry that the Holy Spirit gifted the church with is kind of important. Um, And there's some things that the Bible teaches that we have to trust in in order to have saving faith. These are things like Jesus' virgin birth, right? Or his sinless life or his death on the cross, or his resurrection, or his ascension, things like that. If you deny those, you cannot have saving faith. You need the correct notitia. You need the correct data. The second element of saving faith that the reformers uh, spoke about was the word, again, it's a Latin word, ascensus. It's similar to the English word that is derived from it, which is ascent. Ascent. It means you need to assent to, you need to have a, a, a conviction that the notitia, the information, uh, is truth. I mean, I can ask you this, and I will ask you this. You know, do, you, do you believe in leprechauns? Uh, he's asking a trick question again, isn't he? No. No, I'm just, you might understand what I mean by leprechauns, and you've got the data, you get the information, you're going, let's see, I saw a picture of one, let's see, the little bearded Irish imp with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I saw it in that musical, Finian's Rainbow, back in the 60s. You, know, you understand the information. You understand the data that I'm giving you. You have the notitia. But I'm guessing you don't actually believe that leprechauns exist. If you do, we can meet after church. So you're not giving a census. You're not giving uh, intellectual assent to the truth of their reality. Now, you would say, I hope, uh, if I ask you, was Abraham Lincoln the 16th president of the United States? You're going to say yes. You're wondering if I was the 15th or the 17th. No, it's the 16th. Now, when it comes to, to the Christian faith, you can't say, oh, yeah, Larry, I, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's an awesome dude, you know, Jesus. He's like, he's like a symbol of hope. That's what he is. He's, he represents a, a type of liberation from oppressive government, you know? Is he God incarnate? Well, Larry, <laughs> don't get all you know, theological on me. No, no, I don't believe that. Yeah. Well, then, without intellectual assent to say, yes, I believe the truth of the information, you can't have saving faith. But the person who has the information about Jesus, born of a virgin, God incarnate, Lamb of God, Messiah, that stuff, and also has 
ascensus or the ascension. They give intellectual assent to the information. They say, well, yeah, yeah, I believe the information is true. Will that save you? No. That, that kind of faith won't do it either. Even if you have the information and you give intellectual assent that the information you have is true, it won't save you. James, James said here, we just read it, and I read a lot of sarcasm into this, the tone of this question here. He says, you say you have faith because you believe that there's one God. Oh, oh yeah, you read the Old Testament. You know, you know the Shema. Oh, good for you. You know, you have the notitia. You got the information. You've, you, you believe it. You're giving intellectual assent to it. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they, thank you very much, have the good sense to tremble in terror. You don't. They do. How foolish. Don't sugarcoat it there, James. Uh, How do you really feel? So there must be something more to have the kind of faith that leads to salvation. And that's why the Reformers had a third word. Fiducia. That's also Latin. A lot of you are going to are already. You can hear it. You know, uh, the English word is almost ident- you know, identical. It's fiduciary. You know, a lot of you familiar with the term, uh, familiar with basically what it means. It basically speaks of the concept of personal trust. Personal trust. Well, what do you mean? I mean, you see that chair right there? See it? Sitting right there on the stage. You can see it's got four legs. It's got a seat. It's got a back. It's got cushions on it. It's a chair. Normal chair. It's made for somebody like me to sit on. Yes? Yes. Okay. So we have the notitia. We have the information. We've got the data about what that thing over there is. Second thing, do you affirm with your mind that that thing we're looking at over there is a chair? Do you give intellectual assent that based on the information available to us that this truly is a chair that I can sit on? These aren't trick questions. Yeah, just work with me, folks. Okay, next question. Is that chair supporting me right now? Why isn't the chair supporting me right now? You guys are good. Because I'm not sitting in it. You had to come all the way this morning to learn that. Look, in order for me to move to fiducia, I have to trust my posterior to that seat. Right? I got to take my blessed assurance and put it right there on that chair. And only at that point am I truly relying on it. That's, that's the only time when I'm really trusting in or having faith that it will handle my weight. 
that's what the reformers are driving at when they said justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And they're also saying that we not only believe that Jesus is Messiah, that he's Lord, but that I need him. I embrace him. I run after him with everything I have, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, because our faith is alive. It's vibrant. And it's more than information. It's more than data. It's more than fiduciary trust. There's an affection. There's a love that we're supposed to have for God and for God's son and for the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Before I had Jesus, what I had was a heart of stone, But I've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly I've got a heart that has a love for God. James is saying that we test our salvation. If we have that kind of salvation that I just described. That kind of saving faith. Then every single time without exception inevitably and immediately we will begin to produce fruit. I mean, it's unthinkable to James that a person could be saved by faith and be completely void, you know, absolutely barren of any type of response. He can't believe it. That's why he's going, faith without good deeds is useless. Faith is dead without good works. What? kind of faith is that? That's one of them there questions that has its own answer, doesn't it? James is going to test your salvation. Remember, he's writing to Christians. Test your salvation. What kind do you have? Is it the same kind that a demon has? You know Jesus, and you know about uh, the information, you know it's correct, and then you do nothing? Something's dead. Now, I grew up in the apple orchards of Vermont, and we would plant a new tree, and it was all about the roots. You know, we would, we would plant uh, a root stalk in the ground, and then we would graft into the root stalk a v- specific variety, you know, a Macintosh or a Delicious or whatever we were planting that, that year, and a tree would mature and it would begin to produce fruit. <clears throat> but sometimes, you know, a spring would come around and there's no blossom and there's no bud, and then summer comes around and there's no leaves on the tree, and fall comes around and there's no fruit and there is no harvest, And we could say at that point with 100% certainty, this tree isn't producing. Why? Because this tree is dead. But look, uh, it's not that the blossoms and the leaves and the apples could have made it live. It's just that the absence of the blossoms and the leaves and the apples gives proof that it's dead. We'd cut down the tree and burn it. I think somebody else used a reference kind of like that somewhere along the line. 
James is saying, you know, if there's no fruit of works, of good deeds in your life, then your faith is dead. Again, the good works won't make faith live, but just like the apple tree, the absence of the fruit is proof that this is a dead faith. He's calling us to action. James is calling us to action and he's given us a test and sometimes the calls that that God puts in our way are, are risky. He points out uh, uh, Rahab. Can you imagine how, how frightened she must have been to help God's people? Life and death situation. Sometimes the call is not that difficult. It's, it's uh, just more of a minor inconvenience. And you go out of your way to help somebody who's, who's in need. And when it's done with a heart to please God, well, that's the kind of faith that, that James is looking for. You could do the exact same deed without a saving faith, and it's dead works. It, it's not that James is saying, hey, listen up. You know, if you just do more stuff, you're in. You're saved. He's saying, do things differently than you used to because of the change that's gone on in your heart brought about by the Holy Spirit then he tells us about Abraham, you know, putting his son on the altar. Why would Abraham do such a thing like that? Well, Abraham trusted God more than he trusted his son, and he loved God more than he loved his son. I, I can't help but wonder if that's part of our challenge for today. You know, what is it that you love more than God? What is it that you love more than God? Whatever that is, that's what needs to be on the altar at the beginning of this year. Could be a hobby, could be a career, could be a relationship, could be a pet sin. God doesn't want to be number one on your top ten list of important things. He, he wants to be number one on a list of one. That's how important he wants to be in our lives. Now, I'll close in, in the book of Acts. James has been looking for a kind of faith that leads to salvation, right? A, a living faith. So let's look at the opposite real quick and we're done. There's an account in Acts chapter chapter 8. This is an account of a man who professes that he believes in, in Jesus. His name is Simon. He's a guy who's practiced magic or some translations will say sorcery. Uh, but he heard the gospel that was preached by Philip. And he saw people get baptized. And then he himself got baptized. Um, he was with Philip um, and was amazed at the, the signs and the, the miraculous things that were going on and being performed. And then he witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out when the apostles came to town, the rest of them. And they laid hands on the people and they received the Holy Spirit. You probably know this account. And, and Simon saw this outpouring of the Spirit. And <clears throat> what he did was he offered to pay the apostles money so that he could lay hands on people and they could receive the Holy Spirit. Give me this power 
he said, man, this is way beyond what my magic can do. You know, I'll, let me have it. That'll bring in the big bucks. <coughs> Peter's response was, you know, may your, silver, may your silver perish with you. You can't have any part of this. You're not right with God. You get this here. The Bible says Simon believed. Simon was baptized. Simon was amazed at the workings of the Holy Spirit. And Simon was damned. Oh, Larry, that's a little harsh. Well, I don't think so. Peter said, may your silver perish with you. That guy's perishing. Then he said, repent. He ain't saved. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and you're held captive by sin. Simon was not saved. He was damned. And I think this morning, James is testing us and he's asking us, are you living what you claim to believe? And as I've tried to point out here, the reality is it's possible to believe in Jesus. To be baptized in his name, to continue listening to the preaching of the word of God every Sunday and be amazed at the the moving of the Holy Spirit, to enjoy the moving of the Holy Spirit and still be damned. James calls it dead faith. That's what he just called it. My mom passed away about 13 years ago next month. Her refrigerator was a bulletin board. Every magnet in the house, I think, was attached to that refrigerator, holding up every scrap of paper that she thought was worthy to be on her refrigerator. But always, front and center, she had the famous quote of Francis of Assisi, which is, you know, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Folks, you can hear about faith, but the truthfulness, the truthfulness of it has to be seen, has to be seen. So James is going, here's the test. Look at your works. That's the test for today. There are tests all through this thing. Look at your works. What do they tell you about your faith? Is it alive or is it dead? This is uh, obviously a serious question he's asking. Again, I mentioned some people think this book is just a book of uh, wisdom tidbits. Practical uh, insights for living your best life now. He's asking life and death questions. Are we living what we claim to believe? Put it to the test. We're in serious times. We need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded about what we believe and how we live it. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote this, and it's prophetic. He said, 
We as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life and death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. But do we really believe that we are in a life and death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? Or whether or not those who do live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation? Sadly, we must say that very few in the evangelical Christian world have acted as if these things are true. Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctly biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say it is not there. And that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the spirit of this present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster If the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. That's 40 years ago he wrote this. 40 years have come and gone. Christian leaders have not risen to the challenge is my observation. And judgment seems to be on our nation. But as Lundell pointed out, God is in control. God is in control. He is still sovereign over all that is, right? He still has a people who will bow their knee and call on his name. And this morning, I believe that he is teaching us through his word. And it begins with the question that I keep asking, right? up there on the screen are we living what we claim to believe do you believe are you saved do you believe but if you do then James said you're going to be tested there are times when we can soak in the presence of the Holy Spirit like we just did a few minutes ago But as all of us who know the presence of the Lord, there are times when it's not a sweet soaking moment. He's, God is always there. But we're going to be tested. Some of those tests are really hard. But God's still with us. And the presence of the Lord is still with us. If you do believe, you're going to obey. No, you're going to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. If you do believe, then you'll act. You're going to do something. You're going to bear some fruit. All right? You're going to have some work, some good deeds. You will not do any of these perfectly. All right? But if you have the kind of faith that James is talking about here, not a dead faith, but a living faith, if you have this living faith, then every area of your life, in the full spectrum of life, you will live and act the way you claim to believe, because some things just go together. Right? Don't make me sing that song again. Just agree with me. Some things just go together. 
Now, salvation is the most valuable thing we can possibly have. So, folks, don't settle for a fraud. Don't settle for a counterfeit. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for some anemic, powerless, wimpy, sickly substitute. James is challenging us. Do you have saving faith, real salvation, or is it dead religious works and damnation? So it's a point blank challenge. And he's asking us stuff like, well, how do you handle trials? How's your patience? How's your perseverance? Are you lacking in wisdom? Are you doing, are are you being tossed around like a wave on the sea? Do you look down on others? You got any humility? Do you actually respond to God's word or just listen? It's in one ear, out the other. Do you have a short fuse? You know, do you spout off at the mouth a little too quickly? You get angry too fast? Is your tongue out of control? Is it just showing what's really in your heart? Are you overly impressed with wealth and status? Are you living what you claim to believe? Those are just questions in the first chapter and a half. We're at the beginning of 2023. And we're challenging all of us to let's get at it. And just say more Lord. More Lord. Less of me. More of you. Touch us. Change us. Burn out the junk. Purify us. God wants to prepare us for something. You can go with it or you can be left in the dust. And the biggest thing he's preparing us is that he's coming back. You know? So uh, the gauntlet is thrown down this morning. I'm done. The gauntlet is there. I don't know how you can... I mean, I spent most of the week in repentance. Because you can't read this. I challenge you to read this. I don't know if some, a couple of you said you have, but you can read this book in 35 minutes. You should be reading it all month. And you can't hold that mirror up to you and come away going, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, no problems here. You're going to be challenged. We need to be challenged. We are living in serious times. And uh, it hasn't gotten better from the Christian side of the tracks. So the challenge that, that uh, James threw out to believers still applies to us. And I want us to apply it this morning. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time.